Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of Into the Impossible with Brian Keating and another Brian, Brian Schmidt, winner, co-recipient of the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery of the accelerating universe, which, according to Brian, despite an enormous body of theoretical work that has been undertaken in response to their discovery, there is not yet a fundamentally altered knowledge or perspective or paradigm on how physicists should interpret the acceleration of the universe. And just last week, there was an announcement that not only is the universe's expansion that is accelerating, but its expansion itself, parameterized by the so-called Hubble constant, is in grave tension. There is anxiety. Why do measurements using the cosmic microwave background radiation, the sort of science that I traffic in, and the type of science that Adam Reese, past guest and co-recipient of the Nobel Prize, along with Brian Schmidt, and Brian himself traffic in, which is observations of distant compact objects, be they supernovae, be they Cepheid variables and the like. Why is there such a discrepancy? The chances of which happening by fluke chance are estimated at one in a million or less. So there's great tension. There's great interest in this. And it was just one of the many things that Brian and I talked about. He's an extremely busy uh, human being. He basically runs a university in Australia and how he went from Montana to Alaska to Cambridge, Massachusetts, to Seattle, to Australia is a subject of great interest. But one of the most fascinating things about Brian Schmidt is his obsession with wine. His Twitter handle is Cosmic Pino, and he tweets often about different varietals. And I brought up one of my favorite quotes of uh, the great master, the first observational astronomer in history, Galileo Galilei, who said, wine is sunlight held together by water. So we went through a great deal, including a little bit of, uh, of a topic that I wasn't sure Brian would be willing to talk about. Uh, it really required some uh, genuine vulnerability on his side. Talk about competition and even what he called toxic, uh, toxic competition and the great lead up to the announcement by two different teams, one led by uh, Brian Schmidt, Bob Kirshner, and Adam Reese. And the other led by Saul Perlmutter at UC Berkeley and the really great links that they were all going to to get to the re result first, um, almost at, uh, at great cost to their, to their psyches and to the cohesiveness of the team. And I thought it was great. Uh, it, was, it was greatly appreciated that Brian was able to speak so candidly about what he would have done differently, what he regretted about that. And it's all, you know, sort of in some sense driven by the Nobel Prize. And, you know, my feelings about that. They were just awarded uh, last week by the time you're listening to this, December 10th, the date not of Alfred Nobel's birth, but of his death. Now, why is that? There's an obsession with death in the Nobel Prize. Uh, we can re be referred to my book for more details. But for now, I want you to sit back and relax and enjoy this episode of Into the Impossible. And perhaps you'll do me a favor in the holiday season and leave a review. Uh, because that is really the only thing I want for for Xmas is, uh, is a two-star. No, I want a five-star review, but I'll settle for whatever I can get. So please do me that one small favor. It takes two seconds. Wherever you're listening to this, uh, if it has an option for a review, please do me that huge favor. And this week's thank you note goes out to AK47. Oh, that's a little scary. But he or she says, can't get enough of Brian's stuff. Love every episode, especially the Nobel laureates that Brian always lands. Well... AK, you're in luck. This is one of your lucky days. So if you're enjoying this podcast, uh, you may be interested in listening to all my Nobel Prize winning pod winners on the podcast. And that's on a spinoff podcast called Into the Impossible. Um, uh, Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, the title of my second book. You can find that anywhere you get podcasts. Just look up Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner or my name, and that's my spinoff podcast. And if you're listening to that podcast, subscribe to my main podcast, Into the Impossible. And uh, for now, I want to leave you with some words of wisdom from, uh, from Arthur C. Clarke himself and also from HAL 2000 in 2001, A Space Odyssey, who is now going to let us open the pod bay doors, as in podcast bay doors. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. So it is a great pleasure to be joined by a Brian who did not lose the Nobel Prize, but instead won the Nobel Prize. Brian Schmidt, uh, co-recipient of the 2011 Nobel Prize, the vice chancellor of the Australian National University. You may know them as the Owls, the Fighting Owls. Uh, I believe that is their wonderful mascot, a wise mascot indeed. And uh, today, Brian is joining us from all the way down under in Canberra. Is that correct, sir? That is correct, although I don't think the owls are a mascot, although I like the sound of it. <laughs> well, that's what the uh, the so-called internet would tell us, so uh, maybe it was retracted. The owl was uh, was put out to pasture, uh, but it is lovely to be chatting with you today. Uh, you are my 11th Nobel laureate to be joining us, and this is the 10th anniversary of your receipt, along with past guest Adam Reese and Saul Perlmutter. Of the uh, of the 2011 Nobel Prize, so I thought it was about time for me to extend a proper invitation. And one of the things that's always intrigued me about you uh, is your fascination with wine extends all the way to the most important of all monikers, your Twitter handle. And I thought we'd start with a quote from the very first observational astronomer to ever use a telescope in reality to explore the heavens, and that is, of course, my hero Galileo who said wine is sunlight held together by water. And I had the honor to, uh, to host a conference in 2015 on the relativity anniversary centenary at Galileo's final villa in Florence. And he had a vineyard there where he also said the sun with all those planets revolving around it and dependent upon it can still ripen a bunch of grapes as if it had nothing else in the universe to do. Now, you have a lot of things in the universe to do, but tell me, where do you find the time to be a, uh, a vintner and to explore the properties of this fine elixir of Dionysus? Well, uh, you just have to make time. You know, one of the things about this job, and you know, when I applied, so the vice chancellor for Americans is the president of the university. Not a job I would necessarily recommend most people take, especially in the era of COVID. It's been quite a ride for the last couple of years, but you just have to, um, you have to make time. And, you know, when I was interviewed for the job, um, I kind of went through and said, well, okay, there's, you know, this many hours in a week, I'm going to sleep for about 50 of them. Uh, and, you know, uh, how many hours a week do you want me to work? And how many hours do I get to do things like make wine? And anyway, I convinced them that I could still work an absurd number of hours uh, and make wine. And uh, yeah, you, you make time. It's good because you, you need to decouple from you know anything and everything you do. And obviously, um, of course, up at Arquetri at Galileo's Via, which uh, you know was his prison—a pretty nice prison, though, yes, uh, yes. from my standard. Uh, he drowned his sorrows in wine, which is something you probably don't want to do. But uh, for me, it's just a way of um, getting out and, and thinking. And I often think about astronomy or you know the problems of the world while I'm out working in the vines. Uh, hmm. But it is a way, as I said, to, to de-stress and get some exercise and uh, just do something that's a little different. Now, your handle is, uh, is Cosmic Pino on Twitter and uh, harkens back always to the famous movie from the uh, early, early 2000s, Sideways, uh, where they are really besotten with either support people that are obsessed with Pino and Pino, people that hate Pino. But I looked up, where does Pino grow? And it grows pretty much, and you'll, of course, disabuse me if I'm wrong, but it grows predominantly in latitudes between positive and negative, you know, uh, 30-ish latitude, negative south to negative 37 or something like that. And I know Canberra is at, in the middle of that latitude uh, band at exactly minus 35, I believe. Was that a, a, another part of your choice way back in the, uh, in the late 90s, I believe, when you, when you uh, took up residence in Australia? Yeah, so Pinot Noir, uh, I mean, you can grow Pinot Noir in warm climates, uh, but it produces a very innocuous wine. It just kind of produces red. Uh, and it's it's a kind of a painful grape to grow because it's not well-behaved. It puts shoots everywhere. It has small bunches. It easily gets disease. So if you're going to grow red, uh, 
uh, it's not the not the grape of choice. You're gonna use something else. Uh, Shiraz <laughs> is much easier to grow, uh, but Shiraz needs a little bit warmer to to ripen properly. So here in Canberra, Canberra is up at elevation. Um, so we're at my vineyards at 750 meters, give or take a little bit. So 2,200 feet. So about Tucson, Arizona. If you're in uh, the United States, uh, of course, where I went to university. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so we have the same latitude, almost a little, little further north of Tucson, but it's a very different climate. It's much more cool here, uh, and you need to choose the grape that's appropriate for the temperature uh, that you're at. And so, Canberra is such that Pinot is the only of only one of the major grapes of red, especially 20 years ago when I planted that you could sensibly ripen every year. Uh, I have a little bit of Shiraz planted now. It's hard to ripen. Uh, but I can get it ripe in at least the warm years, um, and it's my climate change hedge. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, you, you choose based on the um, uh, on the climate if you're smart, uh, and uh, if you're dumb, you plant grapes that don't get ripe, and that's mm. not a, that's not a lot of fun. <laughs> now, uh, wine is used in uh, in my religion of Judaism uh, for many purposes, but one of which is to celebrate the fact that uh, wisdom improves and people's wisdom improves with age um and also bread is used to signify that people uh, that certain attributes decay over time i wonder is the you know kind of the 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 appreciation with time is that sort of you know, storage as 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 galileo said sunlight in a bottle is there sort of a stoic property of this wine that that appeals to you that you can sit, grow it now delay gratification admittedly this is a little bit loaded question but but um storing up and delaying gratification, which which uh, sometimes we have to do as scientists, is that an appeal, or is it just merely the pleasure and the and the uh, earthly nature of this of your concoctions? I, I really do like the time, uh, and wine is time and place, right? Mm. If you think about mm. it, I get to take wine from Italy and bring it to my house. I get to take my product, but then there's this delay. It changes over time. It takes mm. years to to actually create from grape to bottle and then years more to uh, really evolve and you can literally go in you know i go through and uh, i do think back um oh here's a bottle of wine that i bought in grad school uh and that wine was made in france in 1982 and so i'm getting a chance to you know i guess connect back to you know a different time and place uh and so I, I do i do find that as a a nice part about fine wine um of course you don't have that type of wine every day of the week or if you do i think you get bored of it i know people who do but i think you you use it um to celebrate occasions sometimes and as i say that uh that long haul that wine represents i think is to me actually a really attractive character yeah, absolutely. And last wine-related qu question before we <clears throat> either turn off our colleagues that are in 12-step programs and, or bore other people, what about pairings with food? How do you find uh, – uh, is that part of the, the, the pleasure as well, uh, or is it something to be savored uh, separately as, as we have in California? You can't have a restaurant as part of a winery tasting room uh, because they kind of want to separate those two functions for some reason. Uh, but uh, what about pairing with food and, and so forth? Is that part of the challenge, the fun, the collectability nature of what you do? So, uh, yes and no. I mean, some wines really go well with food and others, you know, pairings don't quite work well, but I'm not obsessed with it. You know, to my mind, um, I want to get something that's sensible. So I choose wine that's appropriate when I'm eating. If I'm going to have a, you know, a, a fish, uh, a really light fish, um, I'm not going to go and get a monster Shiraz because they just don't work very well together. Lobster and Shiraz don't work well. Lobster and Chardonnay, on the other hand, that's a pretty good combination. So, uh, but I'm not super fussy about it. It's you know I'm, I'm I quite I make Pinot Noir, so Pinot Noir kind of covers a broader range of food. Uh, you can have everything from steak to tuna and stuff. So I, you know, I, that's why I kind of like it. It's a flexible wine. But yeah. I try to, I try to pair to a reasonable amount. But I'm not obsessed with it. 
it's kind of the utility infielder, as we would say here. I don't know yes. if cricket has a has an equivalent down under. I want to now go back to your past, explore your uh, low redshift uh, activity, a slightly higher redshift than we are now. Um, so you grew up in Mount Montana. Although I should point out, Brian, uh, you know when you go to the NobelPrize.org site and you look up the facts about Brian P. Schmidt. It says Brian P. Schmidt has not submitted an autobiography. Is there like some time limit on that that they're going to eventually come back and you know rescind the prize or something if you don't submit your autobiography? Well, the it's it's quite interesting because the actual piece I gave is quite autobiographical. Yeah. So um, it's easier than said to sit down and and write your autobiography, but I'm still living my life, so you know I figure oh, I've got another twenty years in me. <laughs> well, as long as you get to it, um, uh, that's all that matters. I want to uh, talk a little bit about yeah, going back further. You were uh, early years in Montana and Alaska, undergrad at University of Arizona, and then at Harvard, and then um, uh, basically from there to Australia. Um, talk about your dad. I, I, I recall from reading a little bit of background about you that he was a scientist. He was a biologist involved with fish and game. Etc. Um, a lot of the laureates, including Adam Reese, uh, your your co-recipient, one of your two, he credited a lot of the kind of curiosity and scientific inquisitiveness that's so important to, in his you know kind of uh, past world line. He credited a lot to his dad, and um, I wonder if that had any bearing on your career choices. Yeah, I'm very much a product of my mom and my dad. Um, so my mom passed away in 2009. My dad still uh, fisheries yeah. biologist, still doing some work up in Canada. <laughs> Um, although he's, he's 75 now, so he's trying to do a little less. Uh, mm -hmm. so yeah, so my father, my parents had me when they were really young. Uh, my dad had just turned 20. My mom was 19. I was what they called a sophomore surprise, uh, <laughs> back in 1967. And as my father started going and doing a master's degree and then a PhD, I of course was you know, on, on his side a lot because there wasn't a lot of childcare back then. My mother was working to help pay the bills because PhD stipends, as bad as we think they are now, they were worse <laughs> in the past, I think. They were, it was pretty, pretty tough. Yeah. And having a small kid, you know, so he did a lot of babysitting. And, you know, I remember going in the lab and my, my father loved science. He was just passionate about it. And, and so I got to see that. And, you know, my mother, not a scientist, but someone who was a very um, dynamic person and very good with people and, you know, um, doing uh, just getting things done. It was an interesting combination between the two of them. So I, I'm a, I'm a bit of both of them actually, but, but, but that time with my father was, um, I think really instilled in me from a very young age that I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to be a scientist as early as I can remember since I was three. And the type of science you d ended up practicing couldn't be more different, I suppose, from for biology. You know, I always joke I was such a bad biology student that when I would dissect a frog, the frog would live. Um, you know, I was just not cut out for biology. And then you know, you were at Arizona and you got involved with a with an experiment, a CCD camera that was used in a transit survey that would later, uh, I believe, play, pay dividends for things like Sloan and, and other things. Uh, that seems like a pretty big leap from, you know, kind of fascination with fish and game uh, growing up in Montana and Alaska to the astronomy. Was that a product of, of you know, remaining in the West in the United States? and, and, and uh, or, or was it something that had been kindled earlier? Because as I say, it does seem a little bit at odds with biology just uh, to be to be. Blunt. Well, I love science and I still love science. I could have become a biologist. I could have become I was really fascinated with becoming a meteorologist. Um, mm. And so the fact that it was science or whatever, the whole scientific process of trying to understand, experiment, learn, um, design experiments, be wrong, you know, modify, that type of thing, that, that was always what interested me in science. So I actually like science of almost any flavor. The only science that I, I'll be honest, that I never really liked much as a kid, which is quite of interesting, um, is I always struggled in chemistry. Uh, hmm. Not so much the because it was just very formulaic, and I just I you, you didn't get to mix things together and see what happened. Because if you did, you might do something bad, right? We <laughs> always had to kind of follow recipes and things. So chemistry never quite worked the same for me. But hmm. from 
you know, I can remember uh, an eclipse um, when I was three in Oregon. I can remember Comet Kahootek, the failed mm. comet when I was six, 73. Comet West, which was not a fail in 76. Uh, got a crappy, but useful telescope, you know, that my parents could afford when I was probably eight or nine. I remember seeing Jupiter for the first time. Uh, telescope when I was 13. I started then calculating eclipses and things because I was an early computer nerd. And so, you know, one of the cool things I figured I'd do is how to calculate when solar and our lunar eclipses didn't, wasn't good enough to do solar. I could tell when they were going to curve. I didn't know where they landed on the earth, but the <laughs> lunar eclipses I could do. Um, and so those are the things that I did. And so I was always interested in astronomy. I just never thought it would be a job because only the smartest people in the world become astronomers. And I clearly wasn't the smartest people, one of the smartest people in the world, but I was a good student, but I wasn't, you know, one of the top 5,000 people in the world. Mm -hmm. I, I had this view that I should probably astronomy wasn't going to be on the cards, but then I decided after working at the national weather service that the forecast office and things that I was expecting was not as scientific as I had hoped. And I said, oh, crap, I don't know what I'm going to do. Okay, I'll do astronomy until I figure out what I'm really going to do. That's how I ended up doing astronomy. Oh, okay. And then, of course, you had the good fortune to uh, end up at Harvard with uh, Bob Kirshner and also sharing an office with past guest Sean Carroll. Uh, and then we'll get into some of uh, your commingling between uh, his theoretical approach to dark en energy and your obvious experimental approach. But one of the things that most tickles me about your advisor, Bob, which maybe, um, maybe you can comment on, after uh, the announcement in 2011 that you and Adam had won the Nobel Prize, I should say Adam was also his student uh, as well, uh, he made a comment uh, and he said, hey, what's the strongest force in the universe? It's not gravity. It's jealousy. What do you think he meant by that? I've never asked him actually what he meant by that. But what do you think that was meant to imply? Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard him say that before the Nobel Prize. I mean, you know, it's when it's anything, a discovery. So I'm, I'm going to take it away from the Nobel Prize. I'm talking about the discovery back mm. in 1998, you know, so... Uh, Saul Perlmutter's team, Supernova Cosmology Project, the High Z team, were in a pretty brutal battle, which, you know, um, probably unnecessarily so. I mean, science should be competitive, but it should be constructive, right? And our battles were largely constructive, but not entirely so. And so there was a genuine worry by both teams that they were going to get scooped by the other team and not get the credit. And that force of jealousy is really, really intense about people. And I'm a pretty mild-mannered person, and even I felt it. Um, and and that goes through whether or not, you know, who gets prizes and all these things. Um, the world's not always very fair, and it's not um, – it's something we need to remind ourselves is that there's a lot about luck being at the right place at the right time. Normally it requires, you know, lots of people doing good work. But there's a huge amount of luck involved in, in being at the right place at the right time. And, uh, and people really do feel jealous that they were just not quite at the right place at the right time or, or whatever. And, and I get it because it's not really fair. Yeah, I wonder to what extent, you know, things like prizes or accolades contribute to it, because, you know, speaking abstractly, uh, does it matter that, uh, you know, as long as we have this knowledge of the universe, as if we're pure scientists, you know, we shouldn't care who gets there first, of course, you know, for the benefit of the taxpayers who fund us, you know, we want to do it in a timely fashion. But, you know, ideally, I, I don't know if you would agree with that, but ideally it shouldn't really matter who gets there first. Of course, you could say the same thing about getting on the moon, and obviously that was a big – but um, you would like to think of scientists as kind of above those sort of petty, you know, human desires. But uh, I think I think it's almost maybe a misconception that science is not competitive, right, uh, that we don't have needs and desires for uh, things that probably stem from just limited resources, right? Uh, what, what would you attribute this need to be prior, you know, to achieve priority? Is it similar to, you know, nation chest thumping, you know, getting on the moon, or is there something different at work? Well, it depends a lot from person to person. We have a hyper competitive field. There's a lot more people who want to uh, become researchers in astronomy than there are positions available. Uh, we have a way of deciding. You know who we think is 
you know, worthy of those positions that is uh, probably far from being, um, you know, the optimal. Uh, and so people do whatever they can. They're really focused on, on, on that, that getting credit for who and what they are. <clears throat> and, and I think that, um, uh, you know, physics and astronomy selects for pretty competitive people. They've had to be competitive to get into the university and the graduate programs and postdocs, and they remain. They don't suddenly just say, okay, I'm there. I'm going to chill out now and uh, be really easygoing. Um, so it's part of human nature. Competition is important because it, it does make things happen more quickly, but it can be destructive. And so mm -hmm. there's got to be a balance between a bit of competition, but it, I, to my mind, it should always be healthy and happy and you don't want to – it needs to be done openness. What really bothers me is when you get competitive and then you hide your results and you hide your software and things then don't become – they become irre, irreproducible. Uh, we want – the goal is to get the science done as fast as we can. Absolutely. Yeah. And so a little competition, good, a lot of competition, bad. Mm -hmm. I've heard somewhat to me disturbing, you know, predictions about the future uh, of science, including things like, you know, blockchain technology being used to produce effectively NFTs of, you know, the first microscope image of, uh, you know, a certain uh, whatever gene or virus or or what have you. Or you could imagine the first, you know, telescope images of a, you know, of a type 1A supernova and this at this redshift. Um would you worry about that, or or do you see, as I do, also a place for maybe um, maybe eliminating some of the pressure to you know beat the person to publication and all the shortcuts that can entail uh, by maybe you know putting out a result you know in a crypt in a in a in a blockchain format so that everyone could see it embedded in embedded in digital amber, so to speak. Do you worry about any of the new technologies coming online, or do you think that they could have a beneficial effect for science in terms of removing obfuscation and 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 the deleterious aspects of competition? Well, like anything, there's two sides. So let's say you use blockchain technology so that I can instantly release my results out there, and then people can build on that, and I get credit for it through the, you know, through the through the ledger system. Yeah. That would be a real positive. Imagine yeah. I change it and said, I I have this with blockchain, and I keep it in a form where you can tell and prove that I did it, but you don't get to use it. So my goal is to keep yeah. you for, so you know what I've done, but you don't actually get to do anything. With it. I think that would be bad. Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, proprietary periods are necessary to a point, but uh, ultimately you want to minimize them because they hold things. There's a balance of, you know, of openness versus giving people enough time so that they incentivize to, to, to do the best they can with it. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a balance we're just going to have to keep going on. And uh, sticking with the theme of you know mentorship, et cetera, um, in your Nobel lecture, your uh, your paper, um, uh, what have you, you talked about how the teams kind of agreed, or your team agreed, to really um, promote the kind of contributions of young people, including postdocs as you were at the time, and and graduate students as Adam was at the time, um, and uh, and explain the the thinking behind that because you know um, as you said there is a limited number of of postdocs. There's a limited number of graduate students. I call it the academic hunger games. You know, it's like every stage you go up, it's harder and harder to get a job. Um, uh, except actually for postdocs to be, you know, it's actually not so challenging to get postdocs nowadays. It's sort of a seller's market where the postdocs are more in control. But in the buyer's market of faculty jobs, it's almost, you know, we have 400 to one applications for a single physics faculty slot here. I assume it's, it's also incredibly challenging there. Um, is it fair to young people to kind of, you know, have the surplus of, of the of the second tier to being, if you consider it that, just speaking loosely, I don't mean it denigrated in any way, but at the postdoc level, have a surplus of slots only to find this brick wall that they can't go beyond. Is that fair to to young people to kind of artificially inflate their their hopes, or or is that just a natural uh, outcome of a very competitive uh, field of academia? Well, it, it's uh, as long as we go through and. People understand what's happening, and and we do understand why it's happening. There's a lot of uh, research done at the postdoc level. There are a limited number of permanent faculty spots. There's a lot of postdoc spots. The number of postdoc spots 
relative to um, PhD stuff is sort of found in equilibrium. But people need to understand that, uh, you know, postdocs are a wonderful opportunity uh, in some cases. And if that's where your career finishes up and then you go off and, you know, get a job outside of, of research, that's fine. And we need to prepare and give people the opportunity to do and that transition well, right? So we need to mm-hmm. we need to be honest and open about it, and we need to make it so that it's a it's it's a good thing, not a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm here to tell you, I hate to tell everyone, but uh, the pinnacle of my time as an astronomer, not winning the Nobel Prize, it was actually being a postdoc, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Once you get beyond that, then you got you have to do a lot of things that are less fun in life. Right, you have a lot of responsibility, so enjoy the postdoc. And you know, if you don't become a professor, that's okay. You have done the fun bit, and now you can go on and get a different job that isn't that, and life will be good. So I think we need to be honest, open, and transparent, and and quit um, catastrophizing it. It's okay not right. to become a professor. You're not a failure, right? If you don't become a professor, absolutely right. Yeah, some some consider it the uh, you know kind of a, a consolation prize of a kind because it it is very different than what you perceive it to be when you're an undergraduate or a graduate student. Um, speaking of postdocs, when you were a postdoc, your goal was to measure Q naught. I wonder if you could explain what was the mentality what was the psychology going through your mind you were you were using this this tool and technology and by the way you had other opportunities to do other things and you are reported to have said you know you could think of no other uh place that you'd rather be than to be embedded in the expertise of bob kirshner's group so i think that speaks very highly of bob but also of your just tenaciousness to focus on a single goal what is q naught uh, why were you obsessed with measuring that? What did that imply if you were successful, how you might have you know, not led to the down the path that you ultimately achieved? What was Q not like in the 90s or the mid-90s when you were working on it? Yeah, if you think about cosmology, I mean, and there's the, the oft, uh, the sanded jest quote, is that cosmology right. is a story of two numbers, H naught and Q naught. Yeah. So for my PhD, I was remembering H naught, and of course, being able to move to the other number, Q naught is your postdoc, and relatively <laughs> attractive, right? So uh, it was the holy grail. Now, it was the holy grail because we thought the universe was simple, and we thought that curvature, density, and acceleration or deceleration were a one-to-one correspondence, right? Because there was only one thing you had to worry about, which was omega matter. And that one-to-one correspondence meant if you know q naught, the thing that you could easily measure, uh, then that, the game, you you measured everything, right? So it was the holy grail. My God, the beginning and the end of the universe, the shape of space, uh, you know, uh, that's why it was so exciting. And fortunately, the world was, uh, or maybe, I mean, for me, very fortunately, uh, the world was complicated. But, you know, when we were doing it, it was it was literally being able to be part of measuring both numbers that describe the universe as, you know, large scale, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the large scale description of the universe. So Mark Twain reputedly said, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Do you see any uh, rhyming iambic pentameter uh, in this Hubble tension? You know, people are expecting the uh, the two different measurements, the Hubble constant, to agree. The early time CMB, late time um, uh, supernova and uh, Cepheids and stuff that Wendy Friedman and Adam Reese and others work on. They're discordant. That's claimed to be a crisis, as your fellow laureate, the late great Steven Weinberg said, physics thrives on crises, but today, unfortunately, there's not so many. That was back in 1989, by the way. Uh, but nowadays, what do you make of the Hubble tension? Could that be the search for two numbers, except they're the same number? Um, or you know, is there a much more prosaic thing that might be lurking as an explanation? I don't know. I mean, right now, it's not a crisis. It's... Uh... I've got the piano out and I played a note and it's out of tune. It's like, ooh, it's it's all sounding great, but there's something wrong with that E down there. Uh, because, you know, the discordance is 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 there, but it's not it's not huge, you know. It's not twenty-two sigma. It's 
it's five or four, you know, depending on who and how you deal with it. But it's and, about the level of, of lambda detection that you guys made the no, first time. No, right? in, indeed it is. And that's yeah. why uh, the lambda, we, we didn't say discovery. We said observational evidence for, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always tell the story that in 2000, when Boomerang and Maxima came along, and I think we always forget about Maxima, but Boomerang and Maxima were, were literally a day apart, right? And That's those right. two came out, measured the peak of the cosmic microwave background, which told us that the universe was flat. And then the supernova measurements went from being kind of four and a half to being about eight sigma. Right. And I remember seeing that on AstroPH and going to my wife and I said, I'll be damned, we're right. Because at that point, I knew it had to be right. We're not there yet in the discord of the Hubble stuff. Now, so I suspect there's a problem, but I'm not positive. And so I cannot yet tell you, uh, is there something funny going on with, you know, the cosmic microwave background and, and how it measures uh, the uh, effectively the Hubble parameter and then extrapolates it back down to low redshift? Is there something funny going on there? I'm still mildly concerned about things not being exactly as you might expect between the different scales uh, of the cosmic microwave background, but it's not a huge effect. Uh, or is it just that measuring the, the value of the Hubble constant in the nearby universe is really hard, and despite everyone trying hard, there's just something that didn't quite get it right? So any- I could go either way, I really and, and I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Your thesis measurement, if I'm correct, involved the uh, physical properties of a type two supernova, right? Yeah. Um, is anyone proceeding in those directions anymore as a, as a physical way that's not dependent on underlying cosmology? Because that would seem to break some degeneracies. Yeah, I mean, the challenge is that people are continuing to do that, but the physics is hard. And so mm. uh, we thought that the physics was probably good to a Hubble constant within about 10%. Mm-hmm. I reckon now we could probably do it to five or six, you know, but you need to be down at one. And I'm just, I think the inhomogeneities and the supernovae, the asphericity of them, those are all things that make it hard. And And using type two supernovae is really intensive with respect to making measurements. Um, so... It's 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 a harder thing than supernovae. It's direct, but I just worry that the the physics knowledge there's just not enough people, I think, running big codes to to be sure that we've got the actual underlying physics down well enough. There's mm-hmm. there's dust, there's circumstellar material, there's all this crap. You know, they're not perfect <laughs> uh, objects, so right. they're useful, but I, I think probably not good enough to do this question. One of the things that I think made the discovery of your teammates and yourself the um, uh, so pure and, and maybe emblematic of, of great discoveries, in my humble opinion, is that it was basically serendipitous. In other words, you were actually setting out to measure the opposite of what you, you did measure. So confirmation bias is sort, of, uh, is sort of filtered out to some degree. And I wonder and I worry with the Hubble tension being what it is, now everyone's looking for their theory to confirm you know, these measurements rather than the other way around. And so by, by its nature, it probably can't be resolved in such a pure way as, say, the dark energy question. But that's, that's just an aside. I mean, I, I, I view the serendipity, serendipitous nature of that discovery as quite striking and, and, and reminiscent in a rhyming sense of the CMB's discovery, which was also uh, serendipitous itself. Um, in your lecture, in your Nobel lecture, um, you uh, you start off with uh, with an, a, a brief overview of 20th century cosmological models, and you talk about Einstein and what he called his wonderful thought that inertial and gravitational acceleration were equivalent. And I remember uh, knowing a little bit about that as a younger person, and I believe the quote kind of was prompted by his realization that if you were in free fall. You would have uh, you would experience no gravitational forces, and even if you were near a gravitating body. And so he called that his wonderful thought. Um, I want to talk about artificial intelligence because there's a lot being made about artificial intelligent physicists, and that they'll be able to they'll be an artificial AI Einstein, AI E, and there'll be all sorts of great things. But 
that quote that you quote and and the, the preceding sentence about you know falling in a, in a gravity it doesn't strike me as something a computer could identify with uh, first of all a happy thought a wonderful thought what does that even mean uh it seems uniquely human uh and also the uh, the notion of falling i mean an experiential you know visceral sense literally that prompted einstein do you think artificial intelligent physicists can make an einstein-like contribution can they you know, create the laws of general relativity from just observational data? Or do you think we're, it's being a little bit too much wishful thinking? Well, certainly AI as we are right now is nowhere near. I mean, I think people have to remember that uh, AI right now is really just interpolation. <laughs> and it's a fancy interpolation. It does not extrapolate at all, right? So one of the reasons why um, self-driving cars are a problem, are edge cases where humans can extrapolate and say, I've never seen this before, but I'm pretty sure I know what's going to happen. And I'm afraid that your machine learning algorithm says, I've never seen this before, and here's your answer, which has nothing to do with anything. So uh, so current versions of machine learning, not hopeless, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's about finding patterns in, in data that you have. So it, it, you might discover new and interesting things, but you're not going to, it's not going to have that aesthetics that Einstein had of mm. seeing some poor guy fall off a house and saying, Hey, that guy is, uh, doesn't feel gravity. What a wonderful thought as opposed to, I should probably call the ambulance and help that guy out because he's <laughs> probably hurt. Um, so that aesthetics is certainly a long ways away. Now, you know, computer, artificial intelligence may become much more, um, human-like in the future, but it's not there anywhere there right now. So I could imagine it finding little patterns in data. And what I think might happen is you'd go through and you'd say, I suddenly can predict something in physics that I'm surprised I can predict. Why can I predict that? We'd go through the, you know, the different layers of the neural net and say, ah, oh, there's a pattern in there. Why is that pattern there? And then we would go through and use human creativity to try to understand it. That's that's how I think it might happen in the first instance. But I think we're a long ways away from uh, computers disintermediating uh, physicists entirely. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I often say I think you know c computers can beat humans at chess, but I don't know if they can invent the game of chess. Um, I want to turn back to uh, competition. You you said in an interview with a fellow Brian astronomer Brian Green uh, earlier this year, you said that the atmosphere between the TIZ and SCP uh, teams was toxic at times, and you regretted that, and you said you were not proud of it. Now you were a postdoc, you weren't, you know. You weren't a pro there were many faculty members on, on each team. Um, why, do, why do you say that you personally weren't proud of it? And, um, uh, and what were some of the benefits of that competition as ultimately uh, proven out uh, by the solidity of the discovery? Yeah, well, I, when I was a postdoc, but I was the leader of the, the team. And I guess I was friends with a lot of people on Saul's team. Uh, and so we kind of joked and, you know, all going through our, do we have jobs? You know, these are the questions we used to talk about. But the, the, I guess the toxic thing is just, to me, it's embarrassing, right? It's embarrassing because it did not need to be that way. And mm -hmm. we're out there ultimately being role models for students and people watching what's going on. And that, uh, that's not what you want your life to be like in science you don't want mm -hmm. it to be toxic you actually want it to be i should say a bit of comp competition not bad but you want it to be friendly right mm -hmm. and and so that's why i guess um i'm embarrassed by it i don't think it ultimately interfered in any person's you know job prospects or things it didn't we we didn't get it into it where it became personally destructive, but it was unpleasant and unnecessary. Can you offer any ways to, you know, I have a large, large STEM professional audience that, you know, is probably dealing with many of them are probably dealing with such things now. Um, can you not specifically to that, to that, uh, you know, rival battle, uh, but, you know, kind of in general, how can you deescalate conflict? How can you, um, you know, check these 
prejudices that you may have or biases that you may have as a scientist you know we're not known as i always joke you know how do you know a scientist is outgoing because you know they look at your shoes when they talk to you um but how do you you know how how could some of my listeners you know diffuse or detoxify uh, if such a thing is is possible remove the tannins uh give me some <laughs> give me some uh techniques or tools that might be have been beneficial, but as you say, it wasn't ultimately uh, devastating, but could have been better both for the younger students witnessing all this. Uh, but again, I don't want you to speak specifically about that event. Just generally speaking, how can you? How can we as scientists detoxify a toxic situation? Well, the first thing to realize is that whenever uh, you're feeling anger and emotion, you're not being a scientist, you're being human. And that's fine, but it, it gets in the way of the science, uh, the science in us. Uh, trying to uh, allow people easy outs uh, when they've screwed up rather than humiliating them in public, uh, either via Twitter, colloquiums, front page of the New York Times, whatever your flavor is. <laughs> Don't humiliate people. It's a bad thing to do, even when they're wrong. Tell them nice and gently, not this isn't good. Uh, and and see the world through other people's eyes. Be human about it and say the golden rule. Do I, if I were, do, was this how I want to be treated? Right? And generally speaking, when you're really angry, you know, chill out. Don't send the email. Have a walk around. Send it tomorrow. Chill out and be analytical about it and and take the emotion out of things as best you can um because those things set us back and they you know they're they take the joy out of uh, out of science if you get it wrong and and for those of us in power like you know i'm i, I have a lot of power now that i uh didn't have when i was younger uh you have the power to you know one of the things is not to use power when you have it but the other thing is to intervene you know, at a colloquium, when people are beating up on the speaker and piling on, mm. stop it. Say, okay, I think we've got enough on that. Let's keep, let's let the speaker move on, and uh, you know, you can you can intervene uh, when when things are not right. You know, and we need to. We have still a lot of bullying within our communities, um, and it's really hard to exercise power against others in this intellectual sense, but it's basically humiliate them. And, that, and that's, you want to avoid humiliating people. Yeah. Um, and talking about accountability and, uh, and transparency and, and really ownership. Um, last week you had a tweet thread, several tweets about uh, trying to understand your own decision-making and involvement in an archive article today. And, and you apologize for not thinking so much about it. Um, and your mistake is that your participation will provide value to that question. Can you explain why that, what this article was and, and why it's significant? It's an article about, about sort of job and, and um, research impact in astronomy. How do you predict it? First, what, what, what was the conclusion that maybe you regret being a part of? Or can you, can you clarify this, you know, as, as you did on Twitter to some extent, uh, you know, that you took ownership of this decision and wanted to, um, you know, apologize in some sense. Can you, can you talk a little bit about this situation, Brian? Yeah, I'm happy to talk a little bit around it. Um, yeah. This is, you know, this was uh, something proposed by John Cormandy, where he wanted to calibrate um, citations with a group of people uh, from different fields to just sort of, you know, say, what is an individual's scientific output relative to their citation output. Now, I was, at the time, I hadn't really thought through what, what exactly that meant uh, when put onto paper. I was interested right. in just the whole notion of overuse of citations and boiling everyone down to citations uh, in all sorts of ways, and I was worried about that. So in some sense, uh, I was interested in seeing are we going to find out that planetary science has a very different citation curve than uh, cosmology and things like that? Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I wasn't really thinking through the notion, the social construct of having, you know, 21 elite people, very, uh, very homogeneous group of 21 people when you look at it, uh, mm -hmm. casting and, you know, putting ourselves in that position of power and saying, we are God. And, and so the tone of the, the paper ended up being 
something I was pretty deeply uncomfortable with, and I just hadn't really thought through. And I wasn't. I, I will say, John gave me every opportunity to understand what he was doing, and and I feel like I've let him down because I did not uh, pay enough attention to understand what was going to come out. Uh, but I am very concerned about um, using only those types of measures that make us hyper-competitive. There's gatekeeping that I talk a little bit about in the tweet, where it, you're only really, you got to get the break to get into the university, to get into the PhD lab, to get the prize postdoc, right. to even be in this bit. And so there's a whole social thing there that I think that paper missed out on. And I know, uh, having talked to John, I think he's pretty upset uh, and is, he's caused, uh, he didn't, I don't think he wanted to cause that amount of upset. Um, but in the end, I should have thought through what I did and realized uh, what we were doing uh, was, was probably uh, very much out of touch and out of tone of, of the community we want to have, which is we want it to be inclusive and we want to support excellence. But we don't want to gatekeep excellence, um, which I'm afraid a lot of what and how our our um, our field and academia in general works, unfortunately, is it tends to only give opportunities to those who have had opportunities ahead of time. Right, the Matthew effect um, and on display. Uh, thank you very much for that. And as I said in my response to that tweet, uh, your candor and ownership, because I think it's very rare. And I think that's a teachable moment, if you will, for young people to, to you know, to see that you can, I don't want to say make mistakes, but that, uh, but that we're human beings. As you said earlier, when you have any kind of emotion, there's a, there's a, a disservice done by assuming that we're just dispassionate observers of factual, rational reality. I think that's, that drives a lot of people away. Um, you know, as uh, Jim Gates said when he was on the podcast, he was like, I never thought I'd be Einstein, but that's okay. Einstein wasn't always Einstein. Uh, and uh, I think it, we, we promote that myth of, of, uh, of you know, infallibility to our detriment because I think it does exclude the broadest panorama possible. I want to wind up because I know you only have a few minutes left, but I want to um, uh, just kind of um, touch base with, as I said, this this notion that you found it very important to have an intellectually diverse um, set of team members on your team, uh, including theorists and, and physicists, uh, gasp, physicists involved, uh, including your former office mate. Uh, well, your, your former office mate was Sean Carroll. He wasn't a member of the team. But people like Chris Stubbs and, and, and other folks, um, physics uh, and astronomy hybrids, et cetera. Uh, but theorists, talk about the importance of that um, and, and uh, and how, what role that plays in, in having a, a true, you know, panoramic synoptic view of a field? Uh, does it require that, or can we put our heads down, just talk to you know those of us who are like those of us, and uh, and make a lot of progress? Because we, we you know we have theorists and we have you know a data scientists working on it, uh, but it's not clear that you know all my students, shall I say, and this is probably my fault, but that they really have kind of the broad scope of history and and all the different panoramic contributions that are necessary to make a huge caliber discovery. So maybe, yeah, a comment on, on kind of the breadth versus depth, if you will, and the importance thereof. Yeah, it was a big project, and I really appreciated having a bunch of people with specific skills and some people who – uh, you know, could see things from the different part. And so I did really want to have that intellectual diversity and, and, you know, fessing up, we had 20 people on the team, but no women. So we didn't, we didn't mm -hmm. get it all right. And uh, right. if I could go back in time and fix that as a 27 year old, I sure would. Because I think mm -hmm. we, you know, that that was part of our, uh, uh, you know, a missing part of our, our team when I, when I look back at it. Um, so if you're going to solve problems, if they're simple problems, okay, you just, you know, you have a hammer, you smash the nails. This was really hard because we were having to do a whole bunch of things. We we're going to having, you know, to schedule people and telescopes around the world. We're having to write software that had not been written before. We were having to process the data really, really fast. We were then having to send it across and then do a very detailed analysis. And, you know, we did a full Bayesian analysis in 1998. It's literally one of the first 
yeah. ones of those ever done. And I wasn't taught that. And, you know, Adam <laughs> kind of teaching me via Bill Press on the phone. And we were only able to do that because of that diverse group of people came together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you don't really know you need diversity, but it's always useful. And as I said, I, I regret not having a more gender diverse team. It's one of my big regrets and all of that. Um, and lastly, I want to know, what is your daily life like now? I mean, modulating out COVID, obviously, that's a, hopefully a, you know, a time limited, duration limited thing. And, and Australia's, uh, you know, reaction, um, notwithstanding in terms of, you know, uniqueness versus the U.S. But what is what is a vice chancellor, which, as you say, is tantamount to president here in the U.S. or chancellor here? Um, talk about what what is that uh, life like? Is it how do, how do you go from astronomer to vice chancellor? Because it seems like you would have to do a lot of reading or maybe, uh, you know, uh, change gears radically so. So talk about that change from astronomical group leader to now, you know, academic, academician, as we would say. Yeah, well, it was, it's a big jump. Um, ultimately, being a leader of a university in Australia, it's a little different than the U.S. president because you've got the outward bit, but a lot more of the inward bit too. So it's sort of the president and the provost combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to learn a lot. You know, how do university budgets work really well? How do uh, you know? How do you improve the processes in a university and all these business-like things? But ultimately, it comes down to people. Right. Being a head of a university is ultimately about empowering rather than just your group, all sorts of groups and all sorts of areas and getting to work constructively together um, and, and getting things done. So the the work I did with people, um, I think, is the single most important part about being a university leader. But then you have to learn some of the mechanical bits around, you know, how do you how do you run a billion dollar organization? And, you know, listening and talking to people who do management and talking about it is important. But we also have to remember universities are not companies. And so most of the management theory you're going to learn is all about running a company. And I'm telling you, that's not what a university is. Uh, I mean, and, and a lot of universities have become like companies, but then I don't think they're very good universities. They're machines for producing undergraduate degrees or something. So uh, it's been an interesting journey of learning for me. But in the end, the rules around a group of six actually apply to groups of 5,000. Treat people with respect, listen to them, understand things from their perspective, and try to get them to play nice in the the sand yard, uh, in the the sandbox with each other. That's sort of the goal. Uh, And then, of course, uh, get out and tell people around the world what you're doing and why it's exciting. And, uh, you know, that's sort of my job uh, in, fortunately, many, many hours a week. <laughs> do you miss the telescope time? Do you miss the teaching or uh, academic uh, pursuits of a, of a researcher more the, than than you thought you might, or are you comfortable kind of not being in the in the day to day grind of uh, astronomical professional astronomical life? So, I mean, I knew I was going to miss it. I knew what I was signing up for. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, I've been out now for almost six years. And, yeah, I'm really beginning to miss it. So yeah. uh, I, will, I will be a, uh, an astronomy professor once again. But I'm going to have to come into sort of this, you know, rebuild myself for several months to get my skill set back up. And that will be interesting. And so, <laughs> indeed. So, you know, uh, it's here early in the morning and my uh, – my first meeting of the morning is starting in uh, 90 seconds, then it's back to back for the entire day. Okay, I'll take that as an opportunity to ask you one question of my final three patented questions, if you'll be so kind. I want to ask you, uh, Brian, if uh, if you can summarize kind of uh, what you would put on a so-called monolith. Arthur C. Clarke had these monoliths in 2001. They're kind of time capsules. They're kind of uh, uh, devices meant to ward off uh, uh, disaster. Can you say what advice, what piece of information would you most want to put on a time capsule to last a billion years? Uh, The future is more important than you think. 
also pass for my advice to my advice to your former self. Uh, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. Origin of my podcast name, Brian Schmidt. Thank you for spending time with another Brian uh, on sharing some of your valuable time with myself and my audience. I can't thank you enough. Great. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks, Cheers. Brian. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at... Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.